I wanted to say one more thing. I'm I'm really sorry about Bob. It's nothing serious. No, it is. They will all get sick and die. Bob will die. Kim will die. Your wife will die. Understand? No, I don't. I like went into my Irish accent there for a second. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> all right, that's good. Let's, let's let's get into the episode. Welcome, everybody, to Ghost Party Radio, an in-depth and very serious exploration into the world of genre film hosted by two small-time cowards. I'm Trevor. And I'm Adam. Hey, Adam. How are you? I'm okay. Do we have any listener reviews? We do not have any listener reviews because these episodes have not dropped yet. But when they do, please rate us five stars on the Apple iTunes store, the Apple podcast store, or whatever. If you can leave reviews on Spotify, do that there. Make sure you roast us in the review. But again, you have to give us five stars. And we'll read it on the show right up top. It'll be the first thing. You can hear your review right on the... And then you can just leave the episode. We don't care. But please, again, rate us five stars. Roast us. We'll read it right up top. It'll give us something to actually talk about so I don't have to talk to Adam any longer. Please help us. There it is. There's the catchphrase. Adam always says help. Uh, I can't go on any second more <laughs> talking to you at the top of the show without introducing our guest. Um, he is uh, the other half of Ghost Party, uh, which is a genre film community. We don't talk about Ghost Party too much on this show, but we'll get into it at the end of this, I'm sure. Uh, he is a writer-director of some note. He has two short films that he's written and directed, uh, The Vicious and Foxwood, both available on WatchAlter.net, or you can go to WatchAlter's YouTube page. They have a bunch of views. He's been a very good friend of mine since college or even before that in high school. Please welcome to the show, Ian Hawk. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Hey, Ian. Um, real, real quick up top, we ask all of our guests these same two questions, but what is your favorite genre of cinema? You know that we on this show, we kind of break down genres. Well, I love genre as a whole, but if I had to choose one, it would be horror for sure. Um, I just think that there's so much... Uh, fun within the whole thing as a whole um within subgenres, um and yeah gosh it's by far my favorite so what are some of the things that make a good genre horror film well <laughs> depends on who you ask but um for me and i know i know trevor um would definitely agree as well too it, it always has to start with with um the narrative and characters um obviously within the context of horror each movie should be asking, you know, what's the nature of what scares us? Um, and so that has to be something um, obviously very prim- primal and, and um, guttural and, and something that's going to, you know, evoke all those feelings. And what's great is, you know, that that means something different for so many different people. And um, I think that's why you have so many different types of horror movies within the genre. Um, and that's why it's the most exciting for me. I know you have a very strong top three horror films of all time. Uh, tell the listeners what they are. Well, they're all very different. Um, one, uh, I'd have to say probably within the slasher genre, my top favorite is uh, Bob Clark's Black Christmas from 1974. Um, supernatural horror, uh, Jack Clayton's The Innocence, uh, black and white British horror starring Deborah Carr. Um, and then for the kind of cop-out classic, I mean, everyone loves it. It's Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. Yeah, it's uh, one of my favorite movies of all time. I always joke that I would put on Psycho. I mean, it's not a joke. I really would put on Psycho before I would go to bed because I find it so comforting. I love 
the score and all of that and the black and white cinematography. Um, what's your history with revenge on film? Of course, our first genre that we're doing here is revenge. Do you have any favorite movies uh, that are revenge-based? Oh, gosh, so many. Well, first and foremost, I just think it's, it's so exciting that you guys are talking about revenge. Um, but in the context of film, I, I love it, especially just because it, it creates such incredible drama for the screen. When it comes to any like sort of top favorites, um, I, I love stuff that's that's you know more dramatic based. Um, anything historical. Um, some recent picks of ones that I really really loved was um, Jennifer Kent's The Nightingale. Um, another historical one that I know is more mainstream and popular, um, but with a little bit of revisionist history, is Quentin Tarantino's Inglorious Bastards. Um, I think it's probably by far his best film in my opinion and created um, one of the most iconic villains in cinematic history with Christoph Waltz. And then uh, for a third, maybe like more off-kilter, um, totally insane genre pick, I'd say um, Mandy with uh, Nicolas Cage. Those are three awesome picks. Of course, none of those three movies will be, <laughs> will be discussed in this revenge series that we're doing. But um, Adam, do we want to get right into it? Let's talk about the movie. Let's rock and roll. I'm ready. All right, well, this is a movie that Ian has brought in when I asked him to bring a revenge movie in. Uh, basically, a lot of times when we ask the guests to bring in movies, we ask for a movie that's very accessible. So this is on Netflix. It is called The Killing of a Sacred Deer. So what we're going to do is we're going to discuss the movie right now. I'm going to go over some letterbox ratings and reviews. We're going to give some context for the movie, who made it, when they made it. Uh, what we liked about the movie was we like to keep it positive on this show. So we're going to talk about what we liked about it. And then I'm sure Adam has a few gripes with it. Like he always does with every How movie. How dare you? He does. Every movie we talk about, he's, he's the guy that we, you go to the movie theater with. And then when the movie ends, he walks out and says, I really liked it. Uh, I had some problems with it, though. <laughs> yeah, well, they can't all be happy feet. Uh, no, it's, it's funny. Actually, Ian and I will go see a movie with our, our buddy Zeeshan and certainly our buddy Justin. And we'll watch We'll walk out of the movie and... Even if it's a movie we like, of course, the first thing we go to is how we would have like made it better or something like that. But um, one time we walked out of this is a tangent right up top, but we walked out of Zootopia when we saw it. I don't know if you remember this, Ian, but I walked out and essentially it was just like, no notes. Perfect movie. Zootopia absolutely slaps. <laughs> oh, man, Zootopia. But, you know, it's like when you come out, you, you it's, it's fun when everyone's not on the same page. And, and that's one of the reasons why I chose this movie in general, because I feel like it's something... But obviously registers as, as a revenge film, but is definitely um, going to have a lot of different reactions depending on um, you know what what people are looking for and whatnot. Yeah, and we'll, we'll talk about what makes it special within the genre to close it out, and then we'll rate it on our Byzantine arbitrary system. But like I said, this is the killing of a sacred deer. I'm super super stoked to be talking about a Yorgos Lanthimos movie this early into this entire podcast, uh, and this was something that I considered to be a minor Yorgos film, but we will get into that, won't we? Uh, the film is about uh, Dr. Stephen Murphy is a renowned cardiovascular surgeon who presides over a spotless household with his wife and two children. Lurking at the margins of his idyllic servant existence is Martin, a fatherless teen who insinuates himself into the doctor's life in gradually, gradually unsettling ways. Uh, that is a very good plot analysis for this movie. Um, to give it some context, this is the second American film from uh, a very... Uh, Adam, a very canned director, Yorgos Lanthimos. Mm -hmm. uh, what is your guys' history with the movie, Ian? When did you see it first? How many times have you seen it? So I saw it originally when it first came out in theaters. Um, gosh, I remember seeing it in Irvine, California at UTC University Town Center. I know we've seen a lot of movies there, Trevor, back in the day. Shout out to movie theaters whenever they're coming back, hopefully sooner than later. Um, but um, 
honestly, when when I thought about bringing it to to talk about on the podcast, I I was trying to remember. I was like, had I only seen it once, and um, I honestly think yeah, I honestly think that's that's true. I, I it's this is probably the, the the second time I've seen it, and it's just one of those movies that always um, still just you know just left such an imprint on me. Um, despite only seeing it once and it's a testament to so many things within the movie but um, but yeah I've really only seen it once in in, in um, the theater before re-watching it for the podcast yeah I'm in the same boat I actually saw it at the exact same place in Irvine um, I think I you know here's some inside baseball but I was kind of getting a feel for how Trevor was feeling about it this time I like Yorgos a lot, but I wasn't too hot on this movie after leaving it. And um, let's just say it's very different now. Yeah, I, I saw it, of course, at UTC. I don't remember who I saw it with, but um, it really, really left me cold. And we'll talk about who Yorgos's, you know, obsession with Kubrick and Brisson and stuff like that, and even Tarkovsky. It felt so cold. And I know we're getting ahead of the, we're putting the cart in front of the horse right now, but. Uh, I have a little hint for y'all too. I did not feel the same way after this viewing. Same with me. Same with me. Sounds like we're all on the same page. <laughs> um, although, although it did leave me cold. I mean, it is a cold, cold removed film, but I, I loved it for that reason. So The Killing of the Sacred Deer has a 3.8 on Letterboxd. Uh, anybody who's listening who doesn't have a Letterbox, um, anything from 3 to 3.5 is pretty good. Anything from 3.5 to 4 is very good. Anything above 4 is really, really great. So 3.8 is really, really good. Um, Yorgos does not have an English language film below 3.8. The Favorite and The Lobster both are above 3.8. So, I mean, he, he's, he does extremely well in the Lebertox crowd. What, what do you think of the Lebertox crowd, Adam? Um, well, I mean, Yorgos is hot right now, right? Every young film student is going to be like, oh, dark comedy, here's the guy. Yeah, I mean, and, and and I think his next project is like it's it's a. Does anyone remember what it? It's like a adaptation of a book, and it, it just sounds so right down his alley, and I'm so so excited for it. Well, let's read some Lebertox reviews real quick. This review is from Jack. He says, "Hope the dad in front of me who brought his son and daughter to see this had a fun discussion on the way home." Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, that's that's wild. I do remember the last scene of the film, or, or not, not the last. Well, I don't remember the last scene of this movie, which I fucking loved i thought it was so great i remember the second to last scene which is of course the standout scene of the, the feature we'll, we'll get to it in a second morgan says intricate beautiful and haunting but also was waiting to look into the extreme symbolism of every motive and was not super satisfied maybe i'm just not a greek nerd <laughs> what do y'all think of that do you think that when we get into the discussion of the movie that you're going to have some grand reading on this movie like a in, in, like a background in like greek philosophy or something Oh, I mean, I so for me, I've always loved Greek mythology. So um, even though it's been a while since I've um, kind of immersed myself in that world, there was stuff that I remembered um, back from you know younger years of school um, where the stories kind of matched up. And I know it's this is 100% based off of um, a particular uh, uh, tragedy in particular. So um, it definitely translated for me in that regard. Yeah, and I, you know, for me, actually, I think turning my brain off and watching this movie in a very surface level made it even more enjoyable. It's just so good and well put together. I think that's the key that we'll we'll get into that, Adam. I think that's the key is the second watch 
knowing the rules of the movie and knowing how straightforward the rules of the movie are going to be, it's, it's a lot, lot better of a watch. But all right, so we have a third review here. Uh, this is a second watch, so they've already seen it from a Karsten Runequist. They say, I love this movie so much. Definitely my favorite from Yorgos. None of his films have matched his deadpan style as well as this one does. A perfectly paced descent into madness. Yeah, I mean, that, that tracks pretty well for me. Um, I mean, I can't wait to dig into this fully, but um, yeah, it's definitely a descent into madness and hell and all sorts of uh, bleak and, and, and uh, horrible stuff towards the end. Great. Um, so this is technically a suburban revenge movie. So we love subgenres within subgenres. Revenge is a pretty big one. We've talked about Normcore Revenge with Blue Ruin. We've talked about South Korean Revenge with The Handmaiden and I Saw the Devil. But uh, like I mentioned, our, uh, I, Ian and I really like suburban-based movies. We, we, we're we in genre. Of course, we do a lot of horror but uh, Foxwood is very based in suburbia, and uh, of course our second film, The Vicious, has a family straight out of suburbia going to basically the countryside. But um, when Ian had brought this movie to me, I was really, really stoked to be like, oh, that's right, it is a revenge movie, and it takes place in like suburbia, there's a lot of it at the hospital. Um, let's talk about what we liked about it. Uh, first off, um, I didn't re- I didn't re- realize when I saw it the first time or remember, there's an overture at the beginning over Black. I love an overture. Yeah, oh my God, I mean, breaking down certain favorite parts of the movie i mean the opening to me is a standout for sure from that overture to black to the opening shot i mean that overture instantaneously commands um the attention of the audience and instantaneously says this is going to be a big dramatic over the top bizarre um and you guys better buckle up yeah you could tell yorgos really relishes filmmaking and he's just having fun with every little detail I think that there's just one of the reasons I, I picked this movie is just because there's so much to like about it and so much to discuss and kind of pick apart. Um, but first and foremost, at the root of it all, I feel like this story wouldn't be anything without Yorgos's just overall style and take, you know, from the deadpan delivery of the characters to the strange kind of otherworldly uh presence that the camera takes and how it moves in regards to these characters and whatnot and how it kind of references this kind of obviously it's set within a suburban setting but obviously Yorgos is Greek himself but it's it's sort of referencing uh the ideas of Greek tragedy and whatnot and particularly it's supposed to be based on the tragedy of Iphigenia um that was like it was a play done by Euripides um and was obviously this nature of gods and men. And so taking that and setting it within this suburban setting, um, particularly around a surgeon's family, where a surgeon, you know, is usually associated with godliness um, in reality, but then twisting it and giving it this weird kind of just dry, um, you know, almost bot delivery for these characters. It just, it sets it on this like next level experience and, and just um, truly, um, just devolves into psychological uh, terror and horror. Yeah, it took me um, until The Favorite to realize how stylish Yorgos can be. I mean, it's so plainly obvious in The Favorite because of, you know, the vistas and the interiors and everything of that movie, which lend itself to look beautiful. But going back here, I realized, like, there are elements of it in there. Everything is so crisp, especially, like... um, when the kids get moved back into the house, you know, the, there's these beautiful detailed curtains that go all around this room. 
which isn't like I don't think it's a realistic thing for a room to have, but in this movie, it was like uh, I loved looking at it. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm with uh, Adam a little bit in terms of not being able to pick up directly on his stylistic choices as a director. Of course, I understood that he had a certain tone, especially with the lobster in this film. But um, if directing is able to hold a tone, you know, which is one of the major major things that directing is, he is a total master of it. And here we go. He reminds me of M Night Shyamalan's for early films. M. Night had a very distinct way of making movies, and he literally would have characters whisper all of their dialogue, like whisper every line of dialogue. And you don't really realize it when you're watching the movies for the first time how weird it is that they're whispering. And he'll say, like, oh, of course they're whispering because it's just the oldest trick in the book. It makes you pay attention to what they're saying. But um, I think that he, uh, Yorgos has to drop like a horror movie soon because like he's been playing with it with these movies like the lobster is basically a horror movie this is basically a horror movie i just want to see him go full horror and i think if like the high tracking shots in this movie or the low tracking shots that are constantly happening that look awesome that look just like the shining basically really really let me know that like if anyone i mean god forbid anyone were to remake the shining but if anyone were to remake the shining or make something the next great big epic horror movie Yorgos Lanthimos would be my number one pick to direct that movie yeah yeah I mean I would I, w- I would love to see him go into you know full-blown horror but it was interesting I was I was looking at some some press he was doing particularly for this movie and you know the subject of of whether or not this was a horror movie came up and you know that's uh, to be argued for sure. Um, I mean, I definitely think there's huge elements of it, whether it's, you know, the visual style or the narrative itself, but um, he constantly was saying he doesn't like to fully commit to a specific genre. Um, and obviously in that context, particularly horror. And I just thought that was so funny. I don't know if he was just, you know, uh, trying to, you know, just play around with, with people's expectations or whatnot. But, um, but yeah, he seemed pretty adamant about um, not, um, you know, delving into something so specifically horror-based. Which is weird because he's definitely a master of genre, specifically the dark comedy, I think. And his last, all of his movies reflect that. I haven't seen Alps, to be fair, but all the other four that I have seen of his are just exactly that, where The Lobster is more focused on comedy and Killing of a Sacred Deer is a little darker. I still think it's hilarious. I loved this movie. I, I think... It'd be funny to watch this movie with someone who doesn't quite pick up on, uh, on you know the the exact tone here, and then <laughs> to walk out of the theater with them, and for me to say to them, "Oh man, that was hilarious." Yeah, I, I, when I saw the lobster, um, which is, yeah, and I saw that with you actually, Ian, because I remember we walked in like a minute late, and I think when we walked in, it was like the part at the very beginning of the lobster where she shoots a cow. So not that the movie a pony, gives, a pony, a pony, pony, yeah. Well, not that the movie gives you context for that anyway, but it was crazy to walk in on that, and it just says the lobster, and you're like, well, I, I, I saw a couple in the in the parking lot after the lobster, and the guy or or the girl, I can't remember was like just like really really upset and said something like this is why we don't listen to that stupid rotten tomatoes thing you're always on <laughs> right well i was gonna say i can only can you imagine what it would be like going in blind to any of these movies and not being familiar with yorgos or any of his 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 you know tendencies with with style and and narrative It'd be hard to pick up on. I feel like it was, you know, the favorite is probably more accessible or easily more accessible than these last two movies. 
Yeah, I mean, for sure. I mean, the favorite was like, it's weird to think that the favorite was his big breakout, but it absolutely was. I mean, the, it's not like the favorite was a massive, massive hit, but on the independent circuit, it was a really big hit. And it's probably getting gotten him a little bit of a blank check to make whatever he wants. So I'm really, really excited to what he, see what he has next. So Yorgos is a very Cannes director, Adam, uh, and I, I know you're a big fan of the Cannes Film Festival. Of uh-huh. course, we have a podcast that it never got off the ground that we talked about for a year or so called Palm Dior's, where we were going to watch all the Palm Dior winners. Uh, we watched about 20 of them before we killed that idea. So now we've seen, for some reason, all the Palm Dior winners from 1940 to 1970 or whatever. But... Uh, much like director Park, who we talked about with The Handmaiden, uh, he's seemingly always at Cannes. His films are very, very accessible there. Uh, they do extremely well with the European audience. This was nominated for a Palme d'Or. I could definitely see Yorgos winning the Palme d'Or one of these years with some secret, cool, new, dark comedy that we're not going to be able to watch for a whole year. It's just a yeah. matter of time, I think. I mean, we, we know that he's a master of filmmaking. And yeah, well, I can't... Get... Oh, go ahead. You guys know that uh, this one's uh, best screenplay at, uh, at Cannes in 2017, right? Yes, and it, it split the prize with a movie that we'll be doing in this series. Uh, do you know what that movie is, Adam? Nope. Lynn Ramsey's You Were Never Really Here. They split the screenplay award. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, so we have two. Uh, I don't. Well, what's I wonder what, what's that award called? I know Grand Prix is director, Palm Dior is that, but what's the screenplay award called? Does anyone know? I'm not sure the official name, um, but I... I Obviously, it's it's screenplay. <laughs> yeah, it's probably just best screenplay. Yeah, this was nominated with uh, for a Palm alongside The Beguiled. Neither of them won, but Beguiled obviously also stars Kidman and uh, Colin Farrell, who I believe I read on um, IMDb went from the set of The Beguiled straight to this set. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, so I, I, w- we've gotten this far into talking about the movie without talking about my favorite part of the movie, and that's uh, the performance from Barry Keegan. Uh, I... He is just, I mean, I remember him being really, really good the first time, but this was like, and we'll, we'll get to it later. I actually have a couple of uh, games that I didn't tell you about, Adam, but we're going to play them. They're very fun. But Ooh. anytime you see like such an unhinged performance like this, I hate that my brain goes here, but I'm always like, Barry Kingy would be a really, really good joker. <laughs> <laughs> That's what everyone says nowadays. It's it's the thing with anything. Whenever someone gives any sort of bizarre or horrifying uh, or crazy performance. It's like Aubrey Plaza puts in like a good performance in like that Hulu movie Happiest Season, and people were like, Aubrey Plaza would be a good Joker. I mean, I'd see it. Yeah. Any favorite Barry Keegan moments? Oh my gosh, there's so many to pick. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, for me, it's I mean his overall delivery and demeanor, um, mm-hmm. but in particular, obviously, there's once once things actually start to happen within this strange mysticism that you're not sure whether it's real or not. Um, and things actually start to happen to Colin Farrell's characters, uh, Stephen's children. Um, he he takes uh, he says, "Meet me in the cafeteria," and um, you know, basically just so so quickly spews out all this information about what's happening. How um, you know this is revenge for uh, his 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 father's um, death at the hands of Colin Farrell in the surgery, um, and how there's four stages of paralysis self-imposed uh starvation bleeding from the eyes and death and uh it's going to happen to everyone in your family or otherwise uh unless you uh sacrifice one of them and just the way that whole scene unfolds is just there's it's those kind of you know those those low angles on both of them going back and forth and 
just so haunting and unsettling and it just carries on throughout the rest of the movie from there and only gets crazier yeah i feel like his mindset doesn't get a lot of credit they're writing also for it because we later see when he does bite colin farrell and then he bites himself we see like oh this is why he's not actually upset that his dad died he just views it in this weird skewered way and then uh, you know the iconic spaghetti scene is always enjoyable <laughs> i remembered yeah. it being a lot longer and more grotesque me too i remember being like oh this scene was disgusting and then watching it again i was like maybe it's because i didn't have that movie theater surround sound and you couldn't really hear the spaghetti when i was watching it but it was not nearly as gross to me the second time around Mm -hmm. oh my god it's so good i almost was like do i eat a plate of spaghetti uh as we're recording this podcast uh just to take it next level (laughs) gross um but speaking about that scene that you're talking about i think that's the you're either on board or off board scene of the movie i think yorgos puts it right there probably if i had to guess like the 30 minute mark or the 35 40 minute mark and is basically he doesn't know how to get out the absurd plot of the movie so he just has barry keegan literally say it as fast as he can before he runs out of breath um, I think that's the strength of the movie is how direct it is, how it revolves around this like cosmic punishment and it doesn't even even remotely attempt to explain it. Like why waste time explaining it when it's a movie that's truly, it's about fate. That's what the movie is about. Uh, it's, you know, one of my favorite themes in a movie of all time is sins of the father. I love a movie like The Place Beyond the Pines or something of Godfather, of course. It's about sins of the father. So um, I just love how direct it is and just being like, if this is a movie about fate, what's going to happen is what's going to happen. So why not just have a character literally just tell the other character what's going to happen and then watch that thing happen? Yeah. So I yeah, get... I mean, it, it's it's just it's it's so effective and and nightmarish in this whole thing. And again, going to that whole thing of because again, at, at the root of it all, it, it's it's go, delving into this metaphor of of you know the Greek tragedy and this nature of gods and men and whatnot and this strange mysticism and but but basing it in this world that is you know purely realistic and suburban and and you know the, the hospital setting that we all know and um you know very well as being very clean and sterile and whatnot so everything seems completely based in reality but then there's just this bizarre twist of you know higher powers and beings and mysticism that that just really takes things um you know in such a unique way yeah and we kind of get back to that when um the daughter goes into the basement to talk to him alone and gives him the smoke and says, you got to try harder because we know that she knows about it. She's been in on it. Right. And so she, that has to be some kind of link to like the closest explanation we have to what is going on. So yeah, the movie is obviously Yorgos. uh, My newfound appreciation for the movie is basically him working like at his top form, like doing his most Yorgos shit. And it's just really funny to have a scene in there where uh, the girl, the daughter, takes Barry Keegan uh, to the tree or whatever and just probably a a song that, like, Yorgos as, like, a 40-something-year-old man heard as Ellie Goulding's Burn. And he's just like, I really like this song. I'm going to have a character just a cappella sing this song to someone else in a a movie. And I know they used it for the trailer and stuff, but there's something about the scene, and I really like the song as well. There's something about the scene that just feels like a director really, really feeling themselves and just being like, yes, this is going to work. All the absurdity in the movie is going to work, and then this scene is going to also work. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's definitely one of those moments because, I mean, obviously throughout the whole thing, there's there's the larger plot, but you break it down into these certain moments where there's just such strangeness and, and, you know, just bizarre, you know, occurrences and 
sometimes they connect and sometimes they don't. And, you know, I don't know. Is this, is this a moment that you guys, um, I mean, I know Trevor, you just said it's, it's a moment where you feel like it's Yorgos 100% like feeling himself and his vibe. Um, do you feel like there's larger meaning behind it or is it just weirdness for the sake of being weird? I feel like it definitely hits the tone. I, I, it almost, I don't want to believe that Yorgos thinks about these things logically. He sort of floats around and says, yes, this is going to feel good. Give it to me. But there's something about his dark comedic senses. Like, I like cause Ian, I know you will not like a movie if it doesn't, if it feels like it's just like random comedy. I know our buddy Zeeshan will be like, I'm not down with like jokes in a movie. You know what I mean? And a lot of times I don't like jokes in a movie unless they're like really, really good, like Austin Powers or something. Uh, and, um, but this doesn't seem like too goofy, you know, it almost, uh, another movie that I think hits that sweet spot is, uh, Spring Breakers, like when they sing Every Time by Britney Spears at the end, where it's just like, is this like postmodernist, like commenting on itself? It's like, no, it's like genuinely kind of beautiful. And it just really, like I said, feels like Yorgos heard that song, liked it, had a character in his movie that was in choir, um, that would do something like this, you know, like would 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 sing a song maybe for her new boyfriend or whatever, and it just it does work in like an, an absurdist type of way. Yeah, and I I kind of disagree with you. I feel like if anything, the humor in this movie is extremely sort of ham-fisted, but I love it because the tone of it already is kind of hard to decipher, and that's kind of what turns a lot of people off. I think is that they don't know that it is trying really hard to be funny like the scene where he goes to ask the uh, principal about which of his children is better oh my god oh my god yeah <laughs> i mean that's just that that's a pretty funny scene in a comedy but you'd probably fly over it in a comedy but here where where he has to kill one of them what the heck's going on yeah, that, that's to me, though, that's still situational humor because you have to have the context of the entire film to know what he's doing in that scene. You know what I mean? It's not just like a, I mean, it's not, I know your favorite movie, Adam, is Austin Powers' Goldmember, right? Right, that's right. And so it, it's it's not that, you know, it's not like somebody pitched a hundred jokes. Like that joke only works in this movie. I don't know. It's hard, hard for me to explain. I'm just, I'm just I'm just trying to stand up for this movie because I know you hated it. Um, well, well, uh, well, you could like, you could probably chop that scene out of the movie, you know, and it would still flow along as well as it did beforehand. I mean, it's it's true. You could do that. I, I, I don't know. It's interesting because another really, really funny joke, and we haven't talked about it yet. We should. Uh, Ms. Nicole Kidman, who is like literally probably the best actress of the 2010s, was just in so many amazing movies doing so much great work. The joke where she comes into the room and takes off her gown and lays on the bed. I mean, just like the, the volleying of all these characters to Colin Farrell of being like, oh, no, I'm worthy of staying alive. And then she kind of curls up next to him and is like, I mean, we can have another kid. Like, it's not like that. Right. That, that, that is it is a joke. It is a joke, but it's it's contextual humor. It's um, it's situational humor, which is what I mean. And it's just rooted in that, you know, that extreme level of, of bleakness and darkness, which ultimately, you know, it's it's. This, this cruel, twisted humor that is, you know, laced throughout the entire film. And, and again, it just goes back to Yorgos and his, his, his taste to kind of poke fun at all this stuff. And it's very tongue-in-cheek. And um, it's, to me, one of my favorite um, aspects of the film, especially, like you said, Trevor, I mean, when, when it comes to specific forms of comedy, I mean, everyone has different tastes and whatnot, but it's definitely not my go-to. I, I prefer stuff um, more so rooted in... in, in genuine drama but again i think because the the humor is rooted in that kind of deadpan darkness um it just it just hits so well 
this is a tangent, but uh, I mean, in the context of Kidman, I just think she's a powerhouse and just so, so, so talented. And I think it's something that's just always been in her. Even, I mean, Trevor, you had said one of the best actresses of the 2010s, but she's been here before that and everything. And um, yeah, I mean, I just think it, again, just uh, stems down to their individual talent and uh, their own, you know, ability to um, essentially adapt to so many different things. That's why I think she's so great here in particular. I mean, of, of all the, the characters, essentially, obviously, Yorgos has this deadpan delivery he's directing them to do, but I feel like she's still kind of the most naturalistic of them all. She's still very stilted and stunted in her delivery, but um, she still kind of seems like the most engaged emotionally. Um, I don't know if that was just me, but um, I love her in everything. She's, she's one of my favorite actresses of all time, um, but particularly in this too, she just knows how to command everything, whether it's her physicality, her verbal delivery. Um, and also, too, I just feel like there's so many incredible close-up shots of her in this, um, specifically in, like, say, the spaghetti scene or the moment where she's um, talking with Colin Farrell and he's basically um, unfolding the whole confession of, of what truly happened with um, uh, Martin's father and how he was drinking and whatnot and that whole aspect. And, um, yeah, I just, I mean, I think she's, there's a reason why she's in everything and she's had such a long career. Um, she's just incredible. And uh, shout out to her black dress in this movie. Uh, iconic. That's all I got to say about that. Um, to clean up that tangent a bit, uh, I met Kidman as the, the actress of the 2010s because the, she used basically the first 25 years of her making movies to then just do basically whatever she wanted to the last 10 years. I mean, she was able to just reach out to Yorgos. I saw this on IMDb um, that she like begged him to be in the movie. And he was like, you don't have to beg me to be in my movie. Like you're perfect for it and stuff like that. I know Alicia Silverstone did the same thing. She just really wanted to work with uh, Yorgos. But yeah, I think just basically she's just taken that 25 years of goodwill and put it into just 10 years of making like the most interesting stuff. And that's what I mean is not only is she probably the best actress of the 2010s, but she was picking the most interesting movies, working with the most interesting filmmakers. If Nicole Kidman wants a role, she's going to win it over almost any actress that she's that good. Um, this is the first A24 movie we've done on the podcast, which is crazy. I mean, our, our, our movies with our guests bringing them in, if they're available on uh, you know, Netflix or Amazon, this one's available on Netflix, but those movies tend to be newer uh, so I have a feeling we're going to have a lot of A24 movies brought to us because they kind of delve into genre. But I thought this was a really awesome first stop in A24 movies. Oh, yeah. It's it's one of my favorites for sure. Um, I mean, as a company, they, they just kill it with their material just in regards to versatility and so many different genres. And um, this is definitely a standout for sure, in my opinion. Yeah, I'm more of an Annapurna guy. Annapurna, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, honestly, I love Neon. I love what Neon is doing. Uh, but, I mean, I, it, that's just us pushing against A24. Like, we all know deep down A24 is putting out maybe. Uh, You're not you going to get me to say it. Yeah, quantity-wise, they are probably putting out the best movies. It just, it's just everyone thinks that, so we want to kind of rail against it. Uh, is there anything else we liked? Uh, this conversation is kind of flowing by. Um, I do my favorite line of the movie that I want to uh, run by you, if you remember it. Um, this is a Greek tragedy. Everyone's kind of bottled up, and we don't see a lot of emotions. We'll see some crying every once in a while. From like Colin Farrell has that breakdown scene where he's crying, and like the music is swelling. But you don't get a lot of laughing in this movie. There's not a lot of laughing because the characters are all self-serious. But there is the one line. Uh, I think it's at the end of the scene where he uh, Barry Keegan is eating the uh, spaghetti. Do you know what the line I'm talking about is, Adam? Yeah, absolutely. 
it's the best. He just says like, oh, I got to go. I'm going to be late for classes. If I'm late for class, I'm done for. <laughs> and he just laughs. And it's like the first time you see a character laugh. And it is so alarming to watch that character laugh. It's just so great, too, because, again, it's, it's that scene is, I mean, it's, it's a stand-up for so many reasons. But, again, it just comes out of that intimate close-up of Nicole Kidman basically begging, essentially, uh, you know, pleading her case that why why should she and her, her children be held responsible for her husband's actions? And, you know, they're facing death. And then it just goes back to him, and it, you know, turns into this trivial thing followed by this laugh, and it's just exactly what you guys said. <laughs> Yeah, I would love to have the balls as a director that Yorgos has. Uh, going back to what you said about um, Colin Farrell's breakdown, I mean, there's no way I would feel confident putting that scene in this movie with the way that everything else is delivered and the tone. Like, I feel like, oh, people are going to think it's way too off base. It's a, it's like a spike of emotion where everything else is, you know, it doesn't exist as much. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I was actually surprised it was even in there. You would think that you would wait for the break to be at the very, very end. But um, well, I guess we'll talk about it. That last scene with the music and the slow motion and you just see them there in the restaurant without their youngest. And it's just like Barry Keegan comes in and he's just sipping the water. It's just so it's truly just like fate happened. They have like obviously a ton of uh uh, bad will against Barry Keegan's character, but it almost just plays as if they don't want to even acknowledge each other. It's just fate has happened. There's no reason for them to ever talk to Martin again. Martin really shouldn't really be talking to them. I just think it's a fantastic final scene. And it's funny because I did not remember it. The scene before it that we can we, we kind of have lightly touched on with the spinning around with the gun, which is just incredibly tense. Uh, I will always remember the last two scenes of this movie. Yeah, well, I was going to say, I feel, I mean, I love both scenes, but I feel like before we have to, before we talk about that ending, we have to go back and talk about, you know, the pinnacle of everything, where it all comes together. And it's that scene with the gun where, where Colin Farrell ultimately, you know, realizes um, as his son Bob starts bleeding from his eyes that, you know, this is the end and he's got to make a choice. Otherwise, they're, he's going to lose all of them. And yeah, I mean, if you guys, Trevor, I know it's, it's probably your standout scene in the entire film. Um, did you want to talk about it? I just think it. I love it because it's so cinematic. It's like if you're writing a script, you think of what's a, what's the most logical way in this movie that's based fairly in logic other than the complete idea of the cosmic punishment of showing how they're going to make this decision. A lot of movies would just have them draw straws or whatever, but Yorgos just goes for the most like meat-headed way of making this decision. Spinning around in a circle and shooting a rifle until you hit one of your loved ones. Like there's... In reality, there would be nothing. I mean, they're all white-knuckling it sitting there. You can see Kidman is, like, just losing her mind. It is truly the darkest way of going about that that I could see, and it's just perfect for this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love the acting in that scene. Even though they're all, they're all covered up, you could, you could feel that fear from all four of them. Do you, do you think that this scene is, like, uh, like, some inspired by the ending scene of The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly? Oh, because, like with the Mexican standoff at the end of the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly at the, at the graveyard? Yeah, because they stand, uh, you know, in a similar formation. Obviously, there's no one in the middle. Uh, that's really interesting. I never thought about that. It, it, it's more it, it's more of just Russian roulette at, at the most base level. So I was thinking more of like the deer hunter, really. I also like, you know, kind of leading up into this scene, the just the staunch commitment 
to have Nicole Kidman not want to sacrifice herself for her children, which I feel like would be a normal thing. I was kind of even expecting it going back into it, but she does not want to die for her kids. Yeah, we love a we love a flawed mother character. I, I mean, like uh, like we love characters that are allowed to be flawed, especially women. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what. Yeah, I mean, again, going back to that scene that you had discussed previous to this, Trevor, uh, where she, you know, as all this stuff is is kind of coming to a ungodly pinnacle, and they realize, you know, that that this is all very real. She she goes to Colin Farrell and snuggles up to him in bed, and and basically starts to you know talk about that notion of you know we should just get rid of one of the kids you know we can always have another child and this and that and it's it just adds so much of an interesting dimension to to her character and whatnot because again yeah you would expect a mother naturally to 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 you know take hold of that 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 nature of sacrifice especially especially if she has that true nature of connection with um her children, which, you know, so many mothers, that's, that's their, you know, their most prized thing as a parent. But um, from the get go, you look at this family and there's really no sense of true connection between any of them. And looking all the way back to their first dinner scene, that's, you know, you see how trivial their conversation is. And obviously the mundane delivery of their, their speech and whatnot obviously helps with that. Um, But yeah, you just get the sense that there's really no true connection um, through this family as, as things kind of escalate. Right. And another lead up to that scene that I really love is the fact that going into this the second time, I already knew that it was going to be the boy who died. I love it seems so obvious watching it for the second time because they really ham up how much that boy does not want to die and how sympathetic he is compared to the other family members. Talking about um, how he wants to go out and, you know, water the, the garden and this and that and talks about what he wants to do as a career and everything. And Colin Farrell's just looking at him like, <laughs> my God. Yeah. And he's like, I have oh, three man. best friends. Yeah. It's so I, I actually had forgotten that that's who, the one person who died. So when that scene came around, it was just as tense to me the first time. Although I did remember that someone died. So it didn't didn't quite matter who it was. I just knew it was going to be horrible. Yeah. With all the deadpan delivery, I think the creepiest line for me is when uh the uh, daughter asks for the mp3 player and she just shouts please please over and over <laughs> yeah and then and that's really funny have yorgos thinking that a 14 year old girl would say mp3 player yeah i think you know what i'd love to see i'd love to see um this script done but with another director who gives the actors a lot of enthusiasm with their deliveries of lines yeah, I mean, that, yeah, that's uh, yeah. I guess this script is so interesting that I just would want to see a bunch of different takes on it. But I think we may have gotten the best take on it. Um, great pick by Ian. We'll get to rating it in a little bit. We'll see how it does on our scale. But I want to play a new game, a new segment that uh, we're going to play every once in a while, Adam. It's called "How Does This Relate to Batman?" <laughs> okay, <laughs> Adam oh, and God. Ian, can you think of any connections that this movie has to the Batman franchises over the years? Uh, not including that Barry Keegan is probably going to play the Joker someday. This is going to be like a tangible connection, you're saying? There's uh, at least a few. Okay. Wasn't Kidman, uh, she, wasn't she um, the, the female lead in, in uh, the first one? Yes, so Nicole Kidman was in Batman Forever uh, the, with Val Kilmer. So the third, so not the, there was the first Joel Schumacher one. So ding, 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 yes. Nicole Kidman was in a Batman movie. And then I heard you say Colin Farrell is going to be the penguin in the new one. So that is ding, ding, ding. There's two points right there for Ian. Are there any more points on the board? Adam, anything? 
all things end up relating to Batman in some way. Ding, 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 Adam wins. No, also Alicia Silverstone famously played, I believe, Batgirl in Batman versus Robin. Does anyone remember Alicia Silverstone in that movie? I get all my movies mixed up with Batman. That's why I, I don't know if I'll be able to recover now confusing Kidman and, and Tim Burton's one when she wasn't. Yeah, but, that yeah. that was Michelle Pfeiffer, so you, you were pretty close. Michelle Pfeiffer in, in the, the second one. That's Batman Returns because she's a queen. Yes, um, and yeah, so there you go. Three actors in this movie were in Batman movies, or at least two of them were, and one of them is going to be. What would you think of that new segment, Adam? Uh, I loved it. If you could think of one word to describe it, would it be cuttable? <laughs> no okay well i got another segment before we rate this movie it's called rank em, where if i know that a lot of the uh the, our guest and we have seen a lot of the films by this filmmaker we will rank them so um we'll go from dog tooth onward have you all seen dog tooth the lobster killing of sacred sacred deer and the favorite yes okay so let's do it let's rank them uh Wait, let's about, rank them uh, helps no, we're not going to rate Alps or Canetta. Uh, I've seen those movies, but we'll just we'll just stick with when he had basically his big breakout in 2009 with Dogtooth. So, okay. for me personally, it goes Dogtooth number four. I'm not a huge fan of that movie. Uh, then the favorite number three. Uh, I'm a big fan of the favorite, so you can see that his filmography is obviously very strong to me. Then I really really wrestle with it, but because I've seen it uh, more recently, I will put. Uh, the Lobster at number two, and Killing of a Sacred Deer, I think, is now my new favorite Yorgos Lanthimos Dethrone. movie. What about you? Yeah, I think it's Dethrone the Lobster. The Lobster is great, and it was I think it was it was my first Yorgos movie, so I really, really got attached to it. But I just love the suburbianness of this movie. Uh, how would you rank those four, Ian? Where, uh, but uh, I would say Dogtooth number four, uh, Lobster number three, um, Killing of the Sacred Deer, number two, and The Favorite is number one for me. I'm a sucker for uh, costume drama, craziness. I love all those women. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's it just checked all those boxes for me. But, again, The Killing of the Sacred Deer, um, before having revisited this, um, I probably wouldn't have had it as my number two. But upon this rewatch, again, it just it hit so much more, and I, I absolutely fell in love with it in ways I uh, didn't expect from uh, my first watch show. Uh, it's definitely at number two. Yeah, I mean, this watch elevated it for me also. I, I have a newfound appreciation. I think when I heard that we were going to do this movie, I was dreading it a little bit, but I'm so glad we watched it. I would put The Lobster at number four. I'd put Killing of a Sacred Deer at number three. And it's difficult for me to pick a one, but I'll go two, Dogtooth, one, the favorite. Wow. Yeah, I could not connect. So you both have the favorite at number one. I get it. Uh, I, I actually saw the favorite uh, on, on the way back from Art House Convergence, I think I had already seen it twice in theaters, and I saw it a third time, and I saw it in Utah before getting on a flight. Mm. And they had edited out like three or four parts from the movie. I had forgotten that they do that in Utah. I, th I found that surreal. It, it, it just was so weird to me. Like, I, And I knew the parts they edited out, but and it was really interesting to see what they would edit out and what they wouldn't edit out. But um, interesting, Dogtooth number two. Yeah, I just... It might be one that clicks on me when I see it again, but I think it'll be a long, long, long time till I see it again. But um, uh, once again, great pick by Ian. Let's go straight to rating this movie. Uh, we have five categories, Ian. Uh, I don't remember if I sent them to you beforehand, but it doesn't really matter. We rate everything on a one to 10 scale. I will read the category to you. You will rate it, and then we'll go to Adam and then myself. So 
This is what makes up a good revenge movie, according to Adam and I, on the intro to revenge episode we did. Category number one. How fucked over is the good good guy, the protagonist, I guess Colin Farrell in this case, at the beginning of the... Well, okay, wait, now wait, wait. I'm already tripping over this. I'm tripping over this, yeah. Um, I mean, this the, is... I'm very excited that we got this movie on here because this is through the looking glass here where the antagonist is the one getting right. revenge. Okay, yes. So we will, say, we will, how does that apply to this? Yeah, yeah, we will switch this around. So how fucked over is Barry Keegan's character at the beginning of the story? So the, we'll go. We'll go with it. Obviously, like that. Yeah, because because Colin Farrell's not getting the revenge. It's Barry Keegan. So how would you rate that one to ten? How because you know the the trope of like being left for dead in a revenge movie or something along those lines. Um, how how fucked over is the good guy at the beginning of the story? But we'll say it's Barry Keegan in this case. Uh, he's not fucked over at all. So I'd rate it low because he has all the power it seems like i mean again it doesn't really delve into it that much it kind of takes everything at face value um but uh so i guess in that case i'd have to rate is is one the lowest or can you go zero or um yeah i'm not going to try and talk you out of that score but i mean he does his dad is dead at the beginning of the story so he has been kind of screwed over like they they reveal that colin farrell did open heart surgery drunk on his father uh so i wouldn't give it a zero but that's just me you can give it a zero i mean ultimately it, it you I'm I'm gonna stick with that because I mean you almost <laughs> obviously it matters to him, but you hear him kind of talking that scene with with Nicole Kidman where he's talking about the nature of of eating spaghetti and this and that, how that almost even mattered even more so um, than his father's death, and he was even madder when he figured stuff out re- relating to that. Um, so I'd probably say maybe a little bit again, considering the father's death, to a three. Okay, a three. Adam, what do you think? It's hard to say. I mean, if I was in that situation, I would be pretty dang upset. But I don't think, uh, I feel like there's no way that he could really have known that um, Colin Farrell was drunk or really responsible. In fact, it doesn't really, I think the movie makes it seem like Barry Keegan's character is just putting the blame on him anyway, you know, regardless. Um, I'll give it a five right in the middle. Okay, and I'm going to give it a six. I, I, yeah, you're right. He's not really fucked over. It is left up to interpretation if he, if this revenge is happening because Barry Keegan does know that Colin Farrell was drunk. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I guess I'm maybe I may have missed a line in there, but I guess you're right. It doesn't really ever comment on the fact that he knows. But I'll give it a, a strong six. And a very similar question for category number two, Ian. It's are the stakes of the film justified? Is what Barry Keegan is doing to get his revenge justified? Interesting to say. I mean, his character even says himself, I don't know if this is fair. What's <laughs> happening is, I, I don't know if what's happening is fair, but it's the closest thing I can think of to justice. I love it. It's so good. I mean, again, I just feel like with, with, with what this movie is and how idiosyncratic it is with just everything in, it, in, its, in its circumstances, it's so hard to consider all that. But um, I suppose I would say, again, I'm going to stick low. I would say a four. Yeah, it's hard. This movie does, like you're saying, almost operate outside of that question. It doesn't matter if the stakes are justified in the movie's uh, point of view. It's like it, yeah. it, that Ian nailed it with that line. It like does not matter if what's happening is justified. It's going to happen. Right. And so I guess, I mean, if we had to crack it down and say that he, he's doing it out of revenge for his father. Ah, God. In his mind, though, it's a 10. So I'm going to give it a 10. I, Adam, I am giving it a 10 as well. Yeah. I, it, and I was thinking the exact same thing today because I, obviously I know the categories. 
to me in this movie there has nothing stronger than how justified this is because it's truly just going to happen like to me there's nothing stronger than fate like no country for old them and javier bardem is hunting down these people and it's like there's nothing you can do to stop him Mm -hmm. he's a metaphor but i'm with you on this one too i was gonna give it a 10 so (laughs) um and ian you're right this movie does not fit into our basically the way that our scale works is going to be the most generic revenge movie is going to score the best and this is not a generic revenge movie that's although why we... that's why i chose it because i wanted to fuck with it because i don't like scale systems sorry <laughs> i mean unfortunately it's doing it just got two tens in a row <laughs> okay <laughs> I mean, um, how good number category number three how good is the conversation before the storm this is the trope where someone tries to talk the protagonist or in this case barry keegan's character uh, of course his name martin i should know that uh, out of the revenge they want. So uh, the trope where someone tries to talk the, uh, Barry Keegan's character out of the revenge he is seeking. Uh, how how good is that conversation? Is there is that conversation in this movie? There's the, there's a talk between him and Kidman where she kind of pleads her case, just kind of asking, you know, does this need to happen and and whatnot. Um, but again, it's it's not something that's done in the conventional way as as other revenge films. So again, it's hard for me to rate. Okay, so um, do you want us to go first on this one then, Ian? Uh, yeah, sure. Okay, so uh, I am going to say that this conversation before the storm is... It's a 10, baby. This is a 10. This yeah. scene is like the best scene in the movie. It has that awesome button at the end with Barry just saying, "What, dude, so what's the line again? Say it again, Adam. I, I, I know I did it the first time. You, you give it a go. Try the line. If you don't dig a hole in the yard... No. <laughs> no, 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 it's the, the last line in this scene is the one with the, where he says, um, uh, I have to go if I'm late for class, oh, yeah. I'm done for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You nailed it, man. You could be in that movie. In that movie. Um, yeah. You know what? I think that's great. I also think Ian made a great point by talking about, um, about that scene, I guess, but also the fact that Nicole Kidman does go and kind of kiss his feet and appeal to him. I also think uh, there's another scene before the storm, kind of, with Colin Farrell's character and him a few times, maybe, because, I mean, he's the protagonist. I'll give it an 8. I'll go with an 8, too, just to make it easy. Um, again, I feel like it's so hard to do ratings and stuff within this context, but again, there's it's one of those things where the cosmos is involved and nothing's going to stop these events. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, I'll settle with that. Awesome. Yeah, I think it's just like the most extreme version of a conversation before the storm, and it's like my favorite scene in the movie, so... Uh, number four, how strong is the closure at the end of this story? Uh, I mean, I'm going to say it's pretty strong because, I mean, stuff has pretty much been lifted because the family member's been killed. They have that exchange in the in, in the final diner scene. And obviously nothing said, but you see see um, Martin, Barry Keaton's character, take that cleansing sip of water and things are pretty much done and they're going their separate ways. So I'm going to say a 10. Ooh, wow, a 10, all right. Um, Yeah, I think it's hard because I really love the ending also, but I mean, from the family's perspective, God, how awful. And the fact that they walk out of the the, uh, diner and all of them look back except for Colin Farrell's character um, makes it feel like, God, like the villain won, and he did. So I'm going to give it a five. A five. Okay, yeah, I'm giving it a seven. Uh, I think it's a really great final scene, but the closure itself is very cold and mm-hmm. sort of like, 
it, it thematically it's a 10 but in terms of revenge and stuff like that i feel like it's about a seven so it's mm-hmm. a strong showing there um second to last category category number five how cool or clever are the weapons of getting the revenge in this movie Another weird one. I mean, I think, again, it's something where, because it doesn't delve into the level of mysticism, it can't really define it, but you could right. maybe go to those nature of the four stages of the paralysis, self-imposed uh, starvation, bleeding from the eyes, and then death. Those are all pretty horrifying and whatnot. So um, I don't know if they chalk up to being cool, but they're pretty damn effective and horrifying. So um, in regards to getting enacting the sense of revenge, um, I would rate it pretty high at Probably, I mean, again, there's it's this whole nature of basically this otherworldly power. So I'd probably have to give it an eight because, again, it's it's pretty effective and it gets the job done. And there's just that element of cool mystery and otherworldliness to it. Um, and it's not your typical um, conventional sense of weapons for a revenge. So, yeah. Adam, what do you think? Yeah, you know, I mean, I'm, I have this same exact explanation that Ian has. I love that. We don't know what the effing weapon is. I'll give it a 10. A 10? Jesus. I'm going to yeah. give it an 8. Uh, I can't disagree with the 10, but it totally, totally. I, I'm with you. It is the most, I, I called it earlier in the podcast, like cosmic punishment. It's just, mm. it, it's like the most clever, cool thing, I feel like. Yeah. Uh, and then our bonus category, also 1 through 10, Ian. How cool uh, slash clever, or how much did you like the final showdown location of the movie? Not the scene itself, but the location. I mean, the location itself is pretty standard. It's obviously this this opulent um, upper class mansion house that they live in. Um, it's it's again, it's it's cool in the sense of seeing that sort of idealism and have something so dark unfold within it. Um, but again, it's not like it's anything extra grand. It's more of the scene itself that happens that takes the cake. So I'd probably rate it something moderate, around like probably a five, right in the middle. Perfect, Adam. Yeah, I think I'd be in the same, uh, I think I'm in the same camp here because, I mean, we don't even go into that room any other time. We only kind of see it in the background. I'd give it a five. Um, I'm going to give it a four. I'm right there with you. I love that it's in suburbia. Um, uh, of course, that, that's where the whole movie takes place, but it's not really that cool or anything, so I'm giving it four. Although five, five, and four is a decent amount to give a movie for extra credit, I suppose. All right, Ian, you have given uh, on our very, very arbitrary scale the, the killing of a sacred deer a 38 strong score strong score mm-hmm. adam you have given it a 43 right on and i have given it a 6 plus 10 is 16 plus 10 is 26 plus 7 is 33 plus 8 is 41 i've given it a 45 wow and and you've never heard me do the mental math on the show like that out loud that was so amazing. that means 38 plus 43 plus 45 is a 126 for Yorgos Lanthimos's The Killing of a Sacred Deer. Now, these episodes are coming out of order, uh, but I will say, given the context of what I'm looking at, 126 is very, very strong. I think it had a very, very good showing today. Like Ian mentioned many times, this is not a movie that fits into our arbitrary scale system. Our, our scale system goes more towards the most cliche revenge movie, but I think this is a really, really strong showing. What do you think, Adam? Yeah, I agree. Uh, God, I mean, this is right up there as one of my favorites, like Blue Ruin, but, you know, if it, it's not going to win the prize. Yeah, and you know what? It could win a prize because at the end, in our outro episode to Revenge, we give away awards. So, Ian, I'm going to ask you right now, what would your award be to give out? It doesn't have to be necessarily something that uh, the killing of a sacred deer would win, but it could be personal to you. 
Uh, it's going to be the Ian Hawk Award for what? Oh, I love a good villain, so I'm going to have to say the most evil, uh, the cruelest villain. I love that. I mean, yeah, this might take the cake, but we'll see. we got some intense villains coming up. Yeah, we do have a lot of really, really great villains. I love that uh, category. Uh, so I've added it on there. It is, co- of course, going to be the Ian Hawk Award for Cruelest Villain. I love it. I love it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ian, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, a great pick, a movie that we are all fairly trepidatious on the first time, although I'm sure we all saw it as strong filmmaking. But safely, I can say we all loved it this time around. So great mm-hmm. pick. Uh, is there anything that you want to uh, plug before you get out of here? I mean, again, you had kind of mentioned uh, we we primarily work in short form, so we have our short forms, Foxwood and the Vicious, up on uh, the Amazing Horror Platform Alter. Um, you uh, can check it on their website or their YouTube page, along with a, a bunch of other amazing shorts. Um, and yeah, aside from that, we're just mostly writing, so stay tuned for that. Yeah, I should probably be plugging those short films more often on this podcast. I'll, I'll make a reminder to myself. But Adam, anything you want to plug before we get out of here? Um, just follow me on Instagram at Projector Fuel. That's where I post the movies that I'm watching. Um, so what do you want to plug, Trevor? I have a Lever Talks uh, at Captain Dills. I have a list on there that has all the movies that we cover on Ghost Party Radio. Eventually, they're going to be ranked in terms of our arbitrary scale system. Uh, My personal is at Trevor Dills on Instagram and Twitter. And as always, follow us at Ghost Party Picks on whatever socials you have. Um, This was absolutely great. Uh, Ian, again, thank you for being here. Adam. Thank you so much. You were here. Thank you. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, I'm going to let you handle this one, Adam. Finish the sentence for me. Thanks for listening to Ghost Party Radio. We have officially... Killed a deer. <laughs> what kind of deer? A sacred one, Trevor. Bye. Bye. Mm, that's a 10. <laughs>